right, we're going to be in Ephesians, continuing on. So growing up, my family used to always have kind of like family reunions where, we'd, we'd, where we would get together with like my dad's uncle or cousin, sorry, brothers and sisters, my uncles and my cousins, my dad's siblings, and we always went to Lake of the Ozarks. And we have that one uncle, which you all can probably relate to, who takes it upon himself to terrorize all the nieces and nephews. And I had a family full of them. It was my dad and all his siblings were pretty much that way. But we would always go out in the boat and my uncle took it upon himself to, on the tube, try and eradicate whoever was on the tube as quickly as possible. It was like just his goal to, all right, we're gonna gun it, we're gonna do donuts, we're gonna fling them off. And so as a 10 to 12 year old nephew who really wanted to one up my uncle, you held on for dear life. And I remember one day, sadly it sticks with me, where he was trying to get me and my cousin off of the tube and we were holding on for dear life and we hit some waves and I wasn't strong enough to really keep my upper body on the tube. So I dropped, but I still held on, but my waist got in the water and I still held on, but my shorts didn't. But I still held on as we kept bouncing on waves. Thankfully, oh, by the grace of God, my ankles caught everything that shot down, but I just kept bouncing. Finally, I realized what just happened, that there's a breeze where there's not supposed to be a breeze. And so I let go in sheer terror. And again, I had the shorts on my ankles, pulled them up real quick, and it was like, oh man, not only does my uncle like to try and throw us off a tube, he also likes to take jabs and just dig it in. And so I'm getting back on the boat and everybody is having a laugh at my expense, except for the cousin that was next to me who was like, I don't know what happened. And I was like, you're my favorite relative in the world right now. But the, the kind of sad thing is, is now I can laugh about it. The trauma's worn off. Um, I just cinch extra tight, but uh, there for like the next four years, I think, I did not live that down. I mean, every time we'd go back to the lake and I'd get ready to get on the tube, I mean, the memories of that flooded back in my mind, but even everybody else that was at the lake, they would remind me that I exposed a lot of people to my backside and it was just like, man, I cannot live this down, but eventually I did. But what about when you don't? What about when there's that thing in your life that like right now we can laugh about that, but when it's a little more serious? What about when the thing that is traumatizing you is not just being exposed, but it's more being exposed in a deeper sense? Having that moment in your life that, man, you wish you could take it away having that thing that you thought nobody would ever find out about, and then it was broadcast for everybody to see. What about when your deepest secrets came to light, and because the Bible says all things will be revealed, and that sadly is true, that what we think is this little thing that's not going to really affect anybody, it ends up coming out. And we wish we could live it down, but we're not able to. And so here we are, maybe days, maybe years, maybe even decades later, and we're still replaying that clip in our head of what happened. And we wish we could live it down, but we can't. 
And it seems like we are defined by our biggest mistake. Like that's what's going to always be how we're known. What happens in that sense? And so today, as we continue on in our series on identity, as we're looking at what God tells us we are because of who he is, we're going to see how Jesus came to redeem us from that. That we're not our biggest mistake. We're not what our past tells us we are. But when we have faith in Jesus, we are who he says we are. And so we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1, and man, we are moving at a snail's pace right now. We're going to get through verse 7 today, but I'm loving every verse in chapter 1. So if you'll stand as we read Ephesians, we're going to start in verse 3 just to get the whole thought process, and we're going to go through verse 10, but 7 is our emphasis. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Here's our verse. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Father God, we just want to say thank you that as we just partook of the remembering of what you did, you gave your son, God. And now as we see just kind of in a little more depth what that truly means for us. God, I just pray that you speak to us this morning. And God, let us find our identity and who we are in you. God, speak to us. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray this. Amen. Thank you. So when you were born into this world, you were born into a sin nature. And really what that means is that sin naturally came to you. It meant that, man, just, just look at it this way. Is it easier for you to live a holy life or a sinful life? Which one kind of comes a little more naturally? Couple of examples here. Which is easier? Read the Bible or not? It's easier to not read the Bible. Which is easier, praying or not? Getting ready and making it to fellowships on time or sleeping in a little extra or deciding to do something else? How about living in authentic community or isolating and having superficial, shallow relationships with everybody? or resisting temptation, or just giving in to it? Which is easier? For me, I mean, honestly, it's all the knots. It is easier to sleep in. It is easier to, ah, I'll get to reading my Bible later. Ah, God, you know, I said, thank you for this day. Maybe that's my prayer. I'm not gonna actually spend time uh, praying to you because my mind just always runs places. God, uh, 
I have so much going on. Maybe today I'll just take a break. God, I, I, if they really knew who I was, then they, they wouldn't really accept me. God, I fought this, I fought this, and I've prayed and I've prayed for deliverance from this, and it's not coming, so maybe I should just give in. It, we, we have this natural tendency to give in to sin. That's why we're told so many times in the Bible, stand firm, brace yourself. It is a conscious effort and an active role to resist temptation. Over and over, the Bible tells us to resist it, to stand firm, to not give in to it, because the natural inclination is going to be to give in. Because the thing is, we were born into a sin nature, and we were born as slaves of that sin nature. Paul tells us this in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked you just blindly followed the course of this world. You followed the prince of the power of the air that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You were just blindly following them. We once lived in the passions of our flesh. We carried it out. If our mind or our body told us to do it, we did it. We didn't resist. We didn't fight. We just naturally gave into it. And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. I mean, just think about it this way. If you surveyed all the people that were, say, in prison, we'll go that far. If you surveyed everybody in prison, I would almost guarantee that a vast majority, I didn't look up stats, but a vast majority would say, I didn't plan to be here. I didn't want to be addicted to that substance. I didn't want to give in to the drink so much that I began abusing my family. I didn't want to passionately just take revenge on that person for cutting me off in traffic. I didn't want to do this, but next thing I knew, I was here. I would say nobody wakes up and says, today I feel like just throwing my life away. I want to do that. Instead, we just naturally work our way there. They have this desire, and they think, I can get away with it. But as James tells us, he says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So we have this temptation, and instead of fighting it, we give in to it. And it says, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, leads to death. Nobody wants to just go that way, but it builds itself up over and over. Paul, even after he gave himself over to God, he knew what it was to have this struggle with his body, to have this struggle with his mind. He says, I do not understand my own actions. And I'm going to paraphrase here, but he's like, man, the thing I want to do, I'm not doing. The thing that I keep on doing, I don't want to do. I have no idea why it is. I don't understand it. I want to live for God, but I'm living for my body. And I, I don't understand. And he's left with this decision of, man, I'm a wretched person because I'm giving in to the flesh and to the mind. And I know God's calling me not to, but I keep giving into it. And so Paul, he asked the question in Romans 7, 24. He says, wretched man that I am, who's going to save me? Because the harder that I try, the more I fall into it. 
The snare has me. And the more you try and fight yourself out of a snare, the more you get entangled into it. And so it's like, who's going to save me from this? I'm trying and I can't. So are we left to be in that constant cycle? And Paul would say, no way. Verse 25, he says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God because Jesus has redeemed me from that. I'm no longer defined by my past. I'm no longer defined by my biggest mistake. I'm no longer defined by my most embarrassing moment. I have been set free. I have been redeemed from that. If you have placed your faith in Christ, you are redeemed. You've been set free. That's what the word redeemed means. It means to be released or delivered from a state of slavery, to be set free. But it's not just set free. There's a cost. Romans tells us the wages of sin is death. Romans tells us also in 3.23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we are all deserving of death. We are all slaves to sin, which is going to lead us to death. Our own death. An eternal death. But God... He has redeemed us. You have been redeemed in verse 7 of our passage. In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. You have been bought back from the slavery of sin through the blood of Jesus, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Jesus has set us free. You see Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That is a popular, popular verse, and we love to stop right there. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But we got so much more to cover there. Verse 24, it says, but you are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. We love to say everybody is a sinner. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How many could have said that's what 24 said? but you have been redeemed by his grace as a gift from God through his blood. We stop way too soon, but we also have to tell people you can be, you are, if you have believed in Jesus and placed your faith in his blood, you're set free. You're redeemed. You're no longer a slave, but instead you are a child of God. You are not what the world says. You have been made right. That's what justified means. You have been set right with God because we have been bought back from a domain of darkness. So here's the thing, though. We've been set free, but there's still a problem, and the problem is this thing called recidivism. And what recidivism is, is it, it's, a, it's a prison term. Recidivism is the rate at which people who have been set free return back into the prisons. So, for example, the recidivism rate in America is two out of every three prisoners. 
meaning that two out of every three prisoners that get set free from prison will eventually be back in prison. And so that's a lot of where it feels like the Christian faith is. Okay, I've been set free, but like Paul, I'm still struggling. I mean, you tell me that I've been redeemed, but yet there's still this war going on in my life. So where does that leave me? You've been set free so that you can live freely, not in guilt, but in forgiveness. That's the second half of verse 7. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Not only are you set free, the debt's been wiped clean. You have no time to serve. All your sins have been forgiven. Paul said this in Colossians. He said, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and he's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption through his blood to be received by— Oh, sorry, I'm reading a different verse. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of his sins. Jesus bought you back from sin, from slavery, from death. And he didn't say, figure it out on your own now. He said, you are forgiven. Don't try and pay it back. Don't serve community service, but instead live in that freedom. Live in the freedom of forgiveness. Forgiveness means, as we're told in Colossians as well, the slate has been wiped clean. He canceled the record of debt by nailing it to the cross. You are redeemed and you are forgiven of all your sins through the blood of Jesus. We no longer try to work our way back to God, but instead we get to live out of the forgiveness of God. You're not trying to earn his forgiveness, which makes it totally different. When you think you have to earn God's forgiveness, you're thinking, how much do I have to do in order to be forgiven? How many hours of community service will say, until the slate's been wiped clean? But when you realize you've been forgiven, you just live out of that forgiveness. It's like because of all that Jesus has done for me, I get to live for him. I get to serve him, and there is joy and purpose and meaning in that because you have been forgiven, not because you might be forgiven if you do enough, but because at the cross, Jesus did it all. And you see, one of the greatest examples in the Old Testament that I can think of to demonstrate this is found in Hosea, in which we see that God tells Hosea to go and marry a prostitute knowing full well she's going to cheat on you. She's going to leave you. She's going to just go and love another man. We're told that this finally happens in chapter 3, where she leaves and God tells Hosea, go again and love a woman who is loved by another man, and she's an adulteress. She left you, she sold herself, and she's loving Another, she's loved by another man. She's sleeping around even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. Even as the Lord loves you who were slaves to sin, who were cheating on God constantly. And yet he said, go and love her again. 
though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So notice, I bought her. She's his wife. And yet he paid a price for her. I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And then he didn't say, all right, I bought you, I own you, now you obey me. You serve me, you're gonna be a slave in my household. But instead in verse three, he says, you will dwell as mine for many days. You will not play the whore or belong to other man, but instead I will be with you and you will be with me. He bought her back to be his wife, to love her, to cherish her. That is what God has done for you. He paid the blood of his son, not so that you could be his slave, but so that you could be his child, so that you could be his bride, so that you could be loved by him, that you could be set free in the forgiveness of God. Paul says this in Galatians 5. He says, for freedom, Christ has set you free. Therefore, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The way that we walk in freedom is by walking in the Spirit, by being connected to God, by by giving ourselves over to Jesus. And then the Spirit enters into our hearts, and we follow His guidance. Romans 7, 6 tells us we are released from the law. We have died to that which has held us captive so that we serve no longer slaves to sin, but we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. Because God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who no longer walk according to the flesh, but instead we walk according to the Spirit. So you see, when your past comes up, and it's still gonna, I wish I could say that we could erase those memories, and and maybe you're able to. But a lot of times they come flooding back in moments. And we're reminded of those things. When our sins are brought up, what we do is we walk in the reminder that you've been forgiven and you've been redeemed. And you're not defined by that. But the question is that we might struggle with, as Craig alluded to, we're not reminded of that very much. How do we remind ourselves that we're redeemed? How do we remind ourselves in those moments, am I really no longer a slave to that? Am I really forgiven? Have I really been bought back? We know by looking to the cross, by looking to what Jesus has done for us. Notice it says in verse 7, it says, In Jesus we have redemption. How? Through his blood. You look to the cross, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Verse 13 of chapter 2, he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
Colossians told us he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Romans 2 or 3.24 said we're justified by his grace as a gift. Again, how? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received only through faith, not works, but faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Then in 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 17, he says, You, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, because you know that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You were bought back by the blood of Jesus. You're not bought back by how much money you might give to this church or any other organization. You're not bought back by how many good deeds you can do, by how many services you can attend. You're not bought back by any religious service or deed or even good deed that you can think of. You're bought back by the blood of Jesus by placing your faith in him and him alone. You see, you were projected to be a slave, to be a servant, to sin, and to be separated from God forever. Ephesians 2 tells us, remember, you at one time were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were a stranger to the covenant of promise. And then catch this line. You had no hope and you were without God in the world. You were entirely hopeless and you were completely separated from God. You did not even have him in this world. But then 13 is my favorite words, but now in Christ. You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You were without hope. You were without God. But because of what Jesus did, you now have a hope. You now have a purpose. You now have been brought near to Jesus. You You see, think of that love. Think of the love that God saw the only payment for our sins was his only beloved son and he gave him up for us romans eight thirty two tells us that he who did not spare his only son but graciously gave him up for us how will he also not give along with him us all things like he didn't hold jesus back but instead he graciously gave jesus for us and jesus willingly gave his life for us. Who does that? I mean, I'm not giving my son. I could give my own life. But to give my child's is not happening over my dead body. But Jesus said, I'll give my life. And God said, the only payment is my son. Because of his love, he gave him up for you. But he also knew that it wasn't a death, but it was a resurrection. 
that Jesus was going to be raised from the dead. And so therefore, the payment is complete. That is how we know. We don't only look to the cross. We look to the empty grave, which shows that the payment was fully received, that we have been redeemed, that we are victorious because God, through Jesus, conquered the grave. And it's because of that that Jesus is worthy that there's going to come a time where we stand before Jesus and in Revelation 5, 9, it says that the elders and those at the throne of Jesus, they all were saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, and na people and nations. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Worthy is Jesus, because here's the thing. There's a scroll, and it's like, who's worthy? There is nobody worthy. I'm not, you're not, Mother Teresa wasn't, Billy Graham wasn't, Paul wasn't, Peter wasn't. Only Jesus. He is the only one that ransomed us. You see, Satan's going to try and remind you of your past that you can't change. What God wants to do is through his cross and through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, he wants to remind you that you've been redeemed and that through that redemption, you have been forgiven through his blood. Therefore, as Paul would say, for freedom, Christ has set you free. Therefore, do not submit to a yoke of slavery. You see, Jesus, because of this, is worthy of all honor and glory and praise. He's worthy and deserving of all of our lives being lived for him. And so as we ended with Revelation 5-9, we're going to close with this song that is based off that passage. Where what we're going to do to wrap up this service is to just sing of the praise that Jesus is worthy of. Where we say, as they said in Revelation 5, 9, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Jesus is the only one worthy. And so if you'll stand, we're going to sing and close out by reminding ourselves that he is worthy, and through his blood we're redeemed, we're forgiven, so go and live in the freedom that God is calling you to live in. If you'll join me as we pray real quick. Father God, we thank you for giving Jesus. God, we thank you for just doing what we could never in a million lifetimes accomplish. And so that through faith in Jesus, we can be set free, we can be forgiven, we can be justified and made right with you and have relationship with you, God. And so, God, I just pray that as we sing this song, our hearts truly focus on who you are. And God, if we don't have that redemption, if we have not placed our faith in Christ and the work that he did, God, lead us in that so that we can no longer be slaves to sin, but children of you through faith in the blood of Jesus. God, as we sing this song, just work in our hearts so that we can respond to how you're calling us. And it's in the name of Jesus.